listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And good morning. I have the privilege of not preaching, but introducing our special guest preacher today, Dr. Herschel York. Dr. York is the Dean of the School of Theology and Professor of Christian Preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also serves as the Senior Pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfort, Kentucky, and this morning he is joining us with his lovely bride, Tanya. So about 85 couples over the past few, well, two days, Friday and Saturday, we, we were blessed and have the, had the privilege of, of gathering together in this very room and sitting under Dr. York and Tanya and just thinking about what it means to cultivate a healthy marriage. And I just want to say, I feel like I can almost 100% say I speak for everyone when I say it was just an absolutely wonderful time. I mean, we were so very blessed to, to just gather and to, yeah. Uh, for about the past six to eight years, Chelsea and I have admired, um, I don't know, maybe in an unhealthy way, I'm not really sure, Herschel and Tanya, and uh, we've really been blessed by them, just their steadfastness, not only in their marriage, but just their resolve for the Lord in, in all things. And certainly there are no perfect couples, and we are not under the illusion that there are, but in a few key moments in our life, and certainly our ministry, Herschel and Tanya were just very influential to us in making some really important and potentially life-altering decisions, uh, one of those being actually talking about this church a little bit. And so here we are. They are wise, and we are blessed. And so I am just honestly so very thankful that Crosspoint Church gets to count Herschel and Tanya as dear friends now. But now, it is time to hear a really, really good preacher make much of God. And so I would ask you and invite you to welcome Herschel with me now. Thank you, brother. Well, uh, there's no pressure in that or anything, I'll tell you. Let me just say, I am elated to be here. Tanya and I want to thank you. We have been so warmly embraced and welcomed and encouraged in these last two days. I know that the idea when you go somewhere is that you're supposed to go there and, and bless them. And I hope we have, but I am confident that the greater blessing has been ours. And, you know, I, I teach in my preaching classes at Southern Seminary that the greatest preaching in the world is the preaching of a pastor opening his Bible and teaching the word to those whom he shepherds and those whom, through uh, whom he's going through life. He's going through life with you. And so uh, I'm not going to be uh, what it is to hear your pastor preach, but it is also healthy and good for churches to know that, uh, that the Lord has his people out there all over the place. And so though I, I cannot connect with you in a way that your pastor does, I'm not walking through life with you. I don't know your stories. And, and though I love you, I can't love you like your, 
your pastors do, but uh, I come to you today as a fellow pastor and as a brother in Christ and one uh, who is teaching on your behalf in our Southern Baptist Seminary. And so thank you for this privilege. It is my joy to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23. If the Bible were the tabernacle or the temple, Luke chapter 23, I believe, would be its holy of holies. Uh, this and the other parallel passages in the Gospels that describe the key moment in history when the Lord Jesus Christ, who has left the glory of heaven, has come to earth, has lived his sinless life, now goes to the cross of Calvary to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And Luke takes up the story in verse, 20, uh, verse 32 of Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. <clears throat> the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is remarkable. I, I never tire of reading this, of meditating on this, of preaching this passage. I'm struck, you know, the, with the, the paucity of words, the economy of words that all the gospel writers use when they get to this scene. You know, uh, we, we sort of romanticize it in poetry. We embellish it in preaching. You know, we sing songs like Three Rusty Nails, and we talk about the clang of hammers, and, and we describe it in great detail. But notice that really Luke, like the other evangelists, when he gets to the moment where Jesus is finally fixed to the cross, he simply says, there 
they crucified him. Those four words have such an incredible meaning. I mean, they are packed with more meaning than any sentence, I believe, in all of history. Because think about what happens in this moment. The first thing, if we just take this passage, and especially a couple of key phrases, and we just hold them up like a prism in front of the shining light of of God's revelation in his scripture. We take these phrases and we look at them in light of all the other prophecies in the Bible, the epistles that explain this moment. We, we turn this over in our mind. It teaches us so much about God's incredible work. First of all, this is indeed the moment when prophecy becomes history. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and Immediately after Adam and Eve sin, when God comes to them and they feel the nakedness, the exposure of their sin before God, they, they sew fig leaves together to try and cover themselves. But, of course, their fig leaves are not an adequate cover. God himself offers the first sacrifice and clothes them with animal skins. What's he doing He's pointing forward to the only thing that can truly cover their sin. That the wages of sin is death. And the only thing that can atone for the eternal condemnation that they deserve and which he warned them of is that one day he'll provide a sacrifice. And he gives this promise that one day there will be a seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. That becomes the very first prophecy in the Bible that foretells the coming of Christ. And you can read throughout the Old Testament Scripture, it's all looking forward to this moment that the Messiah will come, that he will right the wrongs, that he will atone for the sins, that, that he will bring the kingdom. And it's when Jesus goes to Calvary's cross that this becomes real. This, notice the word there. I mean, it is a precise place. There's there is nothing accidental about this. They, it is a particular people. There are Roman soldiers and there are Israelite leaders. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are high priests and low soldiers. They are all there and yet they crucified him. It's a, it's a painful death. Jesus doesn't die just any death. As Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, he becomes obedient unto death, yes, but even the death of the cross. And it's because of this that God will highly exalt him and give him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. But it's because of this painful death by crucifixion. There they crucified him. It's a perfect sacrifice. Two others are crucified there with Jesus, but they can't pay for their own sins, let alone for the sins of the world. Jesus, this perfect, sinless Son of God, Lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's intention from the moment of creation Jesus is crucified by and for and with sinners. 
even though he himself is sinless. It's the moment prophecy becomes history. It's also the moment that intention becomes action. This, this, this is the very thing for which Jesus has come. This is the very purpose for which he became incarnate. And the babe that was reclined in the manger by Mary is now laid on the cross. And what is it that he says? How does he reveal the intention of his heart as he gives his life? Listen to the prayer that falls from his divine lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now that is a prayer the like of which no one had ever heard nor even dreamed of. I mean, from whose lips could it come but from the lips of a divine being? Such a loving, forgiving, God-like prayer proves Jesus to be the Messiah. I mean, who had ever prayed like this? Not David. You read the Psalms and they're filled with psalms and songs of imprecation. Lord, dash their little ones against the stones. Lord, bring your judgment on them. Elijah didn't pray like this. Why, Elijah prayed for fire to fall from heaven and to destroy his enemies. This is a new strange sound Certainly to those thieves who were crucified with Jesus, I don't suppose that they appreciated it to the full, but I can well believe that it impressed at least one of them and made him feel that his fellow sufferer was a being about whom there was an incredible mystery of goodness and godliness. When that thief hears Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, something happens. This is not just a, 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 pre, a prayer of, of affection. It's a prayer of agony. I mean, do you notice when it is that Jesus prays? It's while they're crucifying him. They've just driven in the nails. They have lifted him up on the cross. They've dashed it down into its socket. And and, and as Psalms describes it in prophecy, they've dislocated all his bones so that he could say, I'm, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. His hands are stretched upon that transverse beam and his feet fastened to the upright tree. And there is where he prays. There is where he pleads with God. Silently, his hands and his feet uh, nailed to that cross are pleading and his agonized body from every muscle and every torn fiber is pleading with God. His sacrifice was presented there before the Father's face. Not yet complete. He has to complete it. He has to die and to be raised up. But there, hanging there in that agony, instead of a cry or a groan, this dear Son of God says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Oh, it is a plea of agony, but it is a plea of affection. Notice the word, Father. It's not merely his affection for sinners. Notice that he pleads the relationship that he has with God. He says, Father, forgive them. 
I mean, he is the son of God. And the basis on which he pleads with God for the forgiveness of sinners is his own sonship. He seems to say, Father, since I am your son, grant me this request. Pardon these rebels. Father, forgive them. I mean, Jesus puts the rights of his sonship right there on the scale. All the sins of his people would be greater than any other thing that someone might offer to atone for them. But, but Jesus puts his sonship right there. And it's greater than even all their sins. And based on his sonship, he says, Father, forgive them. And the rights that Jesus has as the Son of God are very, very great. He's not the Son of God like I am by adoption. But he is the Son of God by his very nature, by the theologians call it eternal filiation. In other words, he is the Son of the highest, light of light, very God of very God, the second person in the divine trinity. And he puts that relationship, that sonship right there before God. And he says, Father, Father, forgive them. Oh, the power of that word when he is in agony, when he is dying. He says, Father, grant my one request. It's not to take him off the cross. It's not to alleviate his suffering. He knows the will of the Father is to atone for the sins of his people. And he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It, it, it's, a, it's a plea of absolution. Notice also what it is that Jesus asked for. To leave that out, to omit that, would be to miss the very point of the prayer. He asked for full absolution for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Don't punish them. Don't remember their sin. Forget it. Blot it out. Throw it into the depths of the sea. Don't remember it at all, Father. Don't mention it against them ever again, forever. Forgive them. What a blessed prayer. What an incredible prayer. For the forgiveness of God is broader and deeper than anything we could ever imagine. When, when man forgives, he still carries in his mind the memory of the thing he has forgiven. But when God pardons, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's what Christ asked for on the cross. It's this that he begged for. And long before you had any repentance or any faith or long before you even knew your need, Jesus had prayed for God to forgive your sin. And it is in answer to that prayer that we were made to feel the weight of our sin and to feel the conviction of our sin. It was because of that prayer that we were led to confess it and to place our faith in Jesus Christ and to believe in him that he alone can save us from this awful sin. Notice, they, 
Nobody there at the cross asked for forgiveness for themselves. Jesus asked for forgiveness for them. I mean, their hands were stained with his blood. Their lips were filled with curses on him. And yet then, even then, it was that Jesus prayed for them. You think of the great love wherewith he has loved us that even while we were yet sinners, when we loved our sin, when we drank it down like a camel drinks down water, when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise the name of the Lord that he prayed for you even when you did not pray for yourself. He prayed for you when you were crucifying him. It's a plea of abundance. One reason why I love this prayer is because of the indistinctness of it. That word, them. What a word. It's simply, Father, forgive them. He, he doesn't say, Father, forgive the soldiers who have cursed me and driven these nails through my body. Neither does he, he say, Father, uh, forgive the people who are staring at me. And yet in the case of the soldiers, he, he includes them. And in the case of the people who stare at him, he, he means them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive all those sinners in the ages to come who will sin against me. But his prayer covers them. Jesus doesn't mention anybody by any accusing name. He does not pray Father, forgive my enemies. Father, forgive my murderers. And yet when he prays, Father, forgive them, he means even his enemies and his murderers. No, there is no word of accusation upon the pure lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. He simply says, forgive them. That's a pronoun I can crawl into. Can you get in there? Can you, by faith, appropriate that big little word, them, to yourself? It, that word is like, a, like a, a carriage of mercy that has come down to earth into which any sinner may step. And it will take you to eternity with the Lord Jesus. Father, forgive them. Now listen, is it even thinkable that the righteous Father of the perfect sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus, would deny the plea of his dying Son? No, that... If Christ has prayed for me, and if he has borne my punishment, that means I will never bear it. If God has forgiven me, I will never be punished. Now, look at this scene, and Luke tells us that something happens here. That there are two thieves that are crucified with him, and now in Mark's gospel, we're told the detail that they both 
rail on Jesus, that they both accuse Jesus. I grew up on the King James Version, so when I quote it, it still comes out what I learned as a child. And I remember in Mark's gospel, it says that they both, speaking of the thieves, cast the same in his teeth. Meaning that while the soldiers were mocking him and the, the priests were mocking him, that even the two men crucified with him also mocked him. They railed on him. They, they, they threw the same thing at him that everybody else was throwing at him. Now, if, if there is anything in all the Bible that proves the depth of the depravity of the human heart, this is it. Because crucifixion, it's an awful way to die, and it's a slow way to die. People think somehow that you die by crucifixion because you bleed out or something. That's not the truth. What happens in crucifixion is that as the weight of the body elongates the body, every time someone being crucified exhales, they inhale just a little bit less oxygen than they had before. And it's slow process over the course of hours they get less and less air they have to push up on the nail that is driven through their feet to just gasp for air and every breath is precious and it's getting you closer and closer to your final demise and to think that as men are dying being executed in this cruel torturous way that they would take the time and waste precious breath to look at someone who's being executed beside them just to mock him. Can you imagine such a thing? But as, as Jesus dies there, the, these two thieves see Jesus dying with them, but he is not dying like them. Father, forgive them. The, now look at these two thieves. They're alike in every way. They, this is where awareness becomes confession. As one thief becomes aware of who Jesus is, it wrought a change in his heart, in his life. Now notice these, these two thieves really represent all of humanity because they are both culpable, they're guilty. There's no question about their guilt or innocence. They are both condemned. They've been sentenced to death. They're both contemptuous of Jesus based on Mark 15, 32. And they both see the same thing. These two thieves witness the same truth. They, they see Jesus' condemnation, but they realize that it's not because of his character. They see Jesus' suffering with them, not like them. And so what is revealed is they both want something different. Notice what Luke does in the text. There's a verb that dominates this text that I read, and it's the verb save. It's used four times. At first, it's the leaders. And for the first time in the Gospels, they admit that Jesus has saved somebody. They admit his miracles They've not admitted it before, but here as he dies, they feel it's safe to admit he did do a few good things, and here's how they do it. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ. And then the Roman soldiers get in on the act. Hey, save yourself if you are the king of the Jews. 
And Luke tells us that that's what the sign over Jesus' head says. And now the dying thief gasped enough air to say to Jesus, save yourself and us. And now notice that the other thief, he's changed. He's no longer railing on Jesus. See, something has happened. He, somehow the Holy Spirit has put this together in his mind. And, and listen to what he says. He doesn't say, can you be so inhumane to a fellow human being? He doesn't say that. He says, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Seeing that you are under the same sentence of condemnation. But now look, he changes to the first person, plural. And we indeed justly. We deserve to die. We're guilty. We're condemned. We've got what's coming to us. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. Now you might say of some criminal, some person who's executed wrongly that he's not guilty of that crime, but of no one else could you say he's done nothing wrong. But this thief's testimony is that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He equates mocking Jesus with a lack of the fear of God. And then he says to Jesus, notice the verb that he does not use. The verb that everybody else has used. Save, 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 save. And he just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is, I think, the most incredible profession of faith recorded in the Scripture. There's nothing like it. I want you to see through the eyes of this dying man because he's looking at Jesus, the same Jesus that the soldiers see, that the high priest see, that the other thief sees, and they see what looks like a very weak man who is being uh, put to death. He's, he is suffering in a terrible way and this is a moment of great weakness before his eventual demise but this thief sees something entirely different he sees a king who's going to sit on a throne and rule the nations and he is so awed by his own guilt that he is receiving what is justly due to him and by jesus innocence and his kingship, that all he dares to ask for is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. That's not what you say to a man who's being executed. That's not what you say to a dying man unless you can see that beyond death, Jesus is saved because God is going to raise him up and place him on the throne where he will rule the nations forever. And this thief is the only person in all the Gospels who believes in the resurrection of Jesus before it happens. Jesus has been teaching the disciples 
that he must die. He, he must be turned over to the rulers and he'll be beaten and he'll be put to death. But on the third day, he'll rise again. He's been teaching them that for at least six months since Caesarea Philippi. And they don't get it. I mean, there are no disciples standing at the foot of the cross looking at the crowd going, hey, we know this looks bad. <laughs> but come back in three days. He's going to rise from the grave. There's no disciples saying, we know this looks bad, but what you're looking at here is the king who's going through the cross in order to get the crown. They've scattered. They're fearful. They don't get it even though Jesus has told them. But this thief, his heart opens. He's hearing Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We know from the other gospels, the other things that Jesus says, and he's quoting Psalm 22. I don't know. The, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's very likely that this thief is a Jew, probably an insurrectionist. This, this bad guy, Josephus uses this word for the insurrectionist in the first century, and he speaks specifically of Barabbas, that Jesus dies in his place. Josephus tells us Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a, a laestase, the word the other gospel writers use. And it's very likely that this thief, I mean, he, he's a first century insurrectionist, a terrorist, and he's guilty, but he's a Jew. He knows some scripture. He's gone to the temple. He's sung the songs of ascent, including Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, my my. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is poured out like wax. He, he's heard Psalm 118, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, 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 and bind the, the sacrifice, the festal sacrifice up to the horns of the altar. And maybe the Holy Spirit uses all this scripture he knows to put it together. And he sees that Jesus, this Jesus dying beside him is the Messiah. I don't know how, I just know that, that it happened. And it's like, it's like, can you imagine Satan and all the imps of hell gathered around this scene thinking that they have won such great victory, that they are extinguishing the light of God, that they are, are taking away Israel's hope. And here's Jesus dying in such weakness, dying in such agony. And it's as though just to show that he is the sovereign Lord of all, he says in his capacity as creator, Lord, redeemer, he says, I'm going to take this one to heaven with me. And there's nothing that shows the power of Jesus like snatching a sinner from the very gaping mouth of hell. I mean, this guy is minutes away from hell. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, now this blows me away too. Because Jesus sees faith where we do not. All he said was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, he didn't pray a sinner's prayer. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't make a donation. He didn't plant a seed faith offering. But when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, this is the moment 
that acceptance becomes promise. You ever wonder what it's like on the other side of death? Jesus pulls back the curtain here and gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side of death with this one sentence. First of all, notice beyond death there's personality. In other words, you are still you. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now look, that means you are not just your body. Your body's significant. It's important. But eventually, you're going to leave that body and you will still be you even when you are no longer in your body. You'll always be a finite being. You'll be in the time, space, mass continuum. You'll, you'll be in a location. You'll be you. And if you're redeemed and in heaven, you'll be a better version of you than you are here. I mean, I know Tanya really looks forward to seeing the glorified version of me. When I am, <laughs> when I am the perfect me, the true me, without all the, the power and the presence of sin, without all the oppression and the scars of the past, to be in heaven with Jesus, to be truly yourself, Beyond death, there's personality. You will be you. Beyond death, there is a place. Paradise. Jesus tells this believing thief, because he has accepted Jesus, that he will be in paradise. Now, Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he talks about being caught up to heaven. He calls it paradise, the third heaven. And it is a reminder to us that what makes heaven heaven is the very presence of Jesus because beyond death, there's a person. And that person is Jesus. Jesus speaks in response to a changed heart of repentance, a complete recognition of his kingship, his lordship, a confident belief in the resurrection Judas had sold him. Peter had denied him. The rest had forsaken him. But it was then that the dying thief said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Professing faith is no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. It means recognizing I'm guilty. That cross on which Jesus died is the just recompense of my sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God warned Adam and Eve on the day you sin, you will die. And that has been the punishment of sin ever since. It's why we're in such a broken, fallen world because the forces of sin and death were unleashed in this world. And they operate uh, somewhat uh, uncontrollably until Jesus sets up his kingdom. So professing faith means saying, I'm guilty, I'm condemned, I'm helpless. But knowing that Jesus is the divine son of God. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign. And he's the Lord of life. He is alive. He died on Calvary's cross. But God raised him up. And by raising him from the dead, God said, 
this is my son. I do accept his sacrifice. It is sufficient for the atonement of my people, and I have answered his prayer, Father, forgive them. When it's all over, the centurion looks at Jesus and says, he is the son of God. And Luke tells us that the crowds beat their breast as they leave, and they feel bad about what's happened. And the women and the followers of Jesus Stand at a distance in the sorrow. But there's another scene that Jesus has promised, but we don't see. But a believing thief enters the gates of heaven. And his welcome and reward is as great as that of Abraham. Because it's about Jesus not about his actions, his deeds, or even his faith. Ultimately, even his faith is a gift of God. He's not saved in some inferior way. He's not welcomed into heaven in some back door, in some secondary style. He is received into bliss because of what Jesus did and what Jesus prayed, and the Father heard and answered that prayer. Now, knowing this warns us of the reality of failure. Both thieves committed crimes. Both thieves deserved death. Both thieves saw the same things. They heard the same words come from the lips of Jesus. Both had an unending destiny, an immortal soul that would spend eternity somewhere. One had faith and professed it. Now, listen. It is not enough to comprehend who Jesus is or what Jesus did or why you are lost. But when you confess and commit to Christ, it's enough. It's enough to simply call upon the king and say, Lord, I, I, I know I'm guilty. I know I deserve death. But I know who you are. And I don't deserve salvation. The most I could even hope for would be that you would just remember me. But that's when the gracious Son of God says, you'll be with me in paradise. Look at these two thieves. Mark them well. Because you're going to spend eternity with one of them. Amen. Father, my prayer today would be that everyone here would have an absolute confidence in the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, and the sufficiency of what he did, and the salvation that is available to them through Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray for the believers that are here today that already know Jesus, that we might just rejoice and exult in the truth and grace of your gospel, that we won't go to heaven in some secondary fashion. We're not going in some back door because we're second-class citizens of your kingdom. 
we are ushered into the very presence of our Savior because of His grace and His righteousness alone. And may we walk in that, live in that, shaped by it, formed by it, directed by it, obedient to it for your glory because you're worthy of our praise. But Father, my prayer is that if there's someone here today, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, someone who has never put their faith and trust in you, may they learn from the prayer of Jesus that there's a pronoun they can crawl into, that you prayed for their forgiveness. And may they learn from the profession of the thief that there's a Savior who can take them to heaven. And I pray that as a result, you'll receive the glory and the praise you are so richly due. We say thank you, praise you for your salvation, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen.